what does God's word say about the importance of fellowship? And as it relates to the freedom series, what relationship is there between our freedom, our experience of freedom as Christians and our walking together in fellowship? If you're in Hebrews 10, we're just going to read there in just a minute. But consider with me, what, what do we think made the church of the New Testament so powerful? Without question, it was an extremely powerful church. They were turning the world upside down, the scripture says. All sorts of conversions were taking place in the life of the church. There would be many answers to the question of what made the church so powerful. It could be the, the Holy Spirit descending upon them as the, the ragtag group of people waited, 120 of them, in the upper room. And the Spirit came upon them with boldness and suddenly they were, they were empowered to speak the Word of God without fear. And Peter, who was just a Christ denier just weeks before that, is suddenly uh, just emboldened to witness. And he's, he's, he's a man with a megaphone and a death wish. And he's, he's all but daring the Jews and the opposing Romans, to come and get them. <laughs> it could be the message of the gospel itself, because when you go back into the early church, you're at a time where there was this pristine emphasis on the power of the gospel. It was before all the, the methods and all of these contemporary intrusions came into the church, and they were just simpletons, I guess you could say. They, they just believed that the gospel saved. And so they proclaimed it wherever they went. They believed and they were not ashamed of the gospel, Romans 1.16. They believed that it was the power of God to save Jews and Gentiles. And did it ever save? Wow. They were coming in by the thousands. It's a powerful church. It could be the signs and wonders that were done at the hands of the apostles. And that was certainly grabbing the attention of the watching world. Gaining an audience for the gospel. But there's another significant dynamic in the New Testament that we're going to look at this morning that was God's instrument as well in both developing, building, strengthening the church, transforming the church, as well as a magnetic tool for drawing the eyes of the world to see how these Christians lived their lives toward each other, how they demonstrated love for one another. Remember, Jesus would talk often about, and John picked this up in the, his epistle, First John, about how living toward one another is redemptive, how it affects people, how they will know that you are disciples by the way that you love one another. And that was a powerful dynamic in the life of the early church that I want us to look at. If you're in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. <clears throat> Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, if there were a summary statement flowing through this passage, and I believe in the larger New Testament on the topic of fellowship, I think it might go something like this. The groundwork is laid for the journey of fellowship toward the hope of our calling. The groundwork is laid, that's verse 19 and 20, for the journey of fellowship, verses 21 through 25, toward the hope of our calling, verse 25. So we're going to look this morning at three unifying principles for biblical fellowship. One, we have a common ground for our fellowship. Two, we have a common journey. And three, we have a common destiny. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we ask for your help this morning to gain insight into your word, into the truth that you give to the church of all time. Lord, may we submit ourselves to its instruction. May we bring our lives into line with your prescription for our lives as it regards fellowship. Lord, I need your help this morning. I I come with weakness, uh, but your word is strong. And so, Lord, may, uh, may my dependence be upon the power of your word, not of... Uh, the tone of my voice. Lord, we need your help this morning. Instruct us, teach us, transform us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it wouldn't be difficult to argue that 1678 as a year was and marked the production of one of the most influential books in the history of literature. Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan was an allegory about the Christian life. Uh, But really, from the perspective of the series that we're in right now, in a sense, it's a story about the Christian struggle. But not simply the, the Christian struggle, because remember, the title of the book is The Pilgrim's Progress. And so, to be sure, one of the constants in the book would be temptation, struggling, falling, But another constant in the book would be movement. It's fascinating to see as you read through the book how Christian, that's the name of the pilgrim, how he's growing in discernment, how right at the opening pages he gets whacked a couple of times and instantly he he has a new degree of spiritual street smarts. He's learning how this whole battle goes down in the Christian life. And he's growing in discernment. And he's always moving towards something. He's moving. It has a big, fat rearview mirror installed in the book where you're seeing him moving away, constantly away from the city of destruction and closer always to the celestial city. And so you see that in the rearview mirror of the book as he continues to walk through this and that struggle. You're seeing that city of destruction getting smaller and smaller and smaller as he grows in his faith and he matures and he's continually and increasingly freed from the things that he struggled with. He even begins with this massive burden on his back and he's feverishly looking for a way to get it off. 
And so Mr. Legalist comes in and says, I can take that off for you. Mr. Civility, and Mr. Worldly Wise Man, all these different people are coming up and saying, hey, lose, lose the bag. And the evangelist is saying, there's only one way to lose the bag. Go to the cross. And so he's, he's always going toward this movement of redemption and deliverance. He's headed in that direction. But there is, for our purposes in the Freedom Series, there's an interesting, really a fascinating exchange. Where early in the book, the pilgrim comes to the house of the interpreter. The interpreter represents the Holy Spirit. Again, it's an allegory. So, he goes into the house of the interpreter. He's going to learn some lessons about the rest of his Christian journey. And the first thing that the interpreter does is he takes him into a room where there's a man in a cage. A Christian in a cage. And so Christian, the pilgrim, he's... He just looks at the man over there and he, he turns to the interpreter and he says, well, what's the deal with this? Why is this man sitting in a cage? The interpreter wants this to be a teaching moment. So he says, you know, this is archaic language, so it's 1678, but contemporarily he would be saying, ask him. Why don't you ask him what he's doing in the cage? And... Question by question, as Christian draws this man out, he's getting lessons from a prisoner on how to stay out of cages. He's learning all of the things, little by little, line by line, all the things that this man neglected in his Christian walk. And now he finds himself in the cage. And so the bottom line, as many things were mentioned in that context, the bottom line was, for Christian, at the outset of his journey, he found out, You have to make sure that you make use of every means God has given you in His Word for the experience and maintenance of your freedom. One of the means that we're going to look at this morning for our maintaining freedom and experiencing greater freedom is fellowship in the body. Absolutely essential. I hope that we see that before we're through. This morning, Hebrews chapter 10, the first three verses. Therefore, brothers, verse 19, that is, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God. Now these first verses of our text this morning establish three essential truths that form the ground of our fellowship. The ground of our growth in freedom as we walk together in fellowship. Because it's about to turn the corner in the next verse and say, because of this, because we're on this ground, because this has been provided for us, Let us therefore do these things. And it walks straight into the life of fellowship for the church. But these three grounds are access to God. Atoning forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. And a perfect high priest who intercedes for us. Now isn't it interesting... You know, when you think about relationships, associations, fellowships, interest groups, how they come together, there are all sorts. I'm sure if we did a Google search on interest groups, you'd get hundreds of pages of 
quirky little groups of people who find one strand of interest that they put all the desire of their lives into that. You know, you have somebody bumps into another bereaved gerbil owner and they, they start an association, you know, friends of bereaved gerbil owners. And next thing you know, a couple months later, you know, FobGo.com, come see us. And, and it, there's just this band of people who have found each other who grieve over their lost gerbils. But there are all kinds of things like that. I mean, if you listen to NPR, one of the sort of attractive features of NPR news is how they find these little quirky stories sometimes. About, I remember hearing one where this guy was a French student. He was from, you know, the Bronx or something, but he's a French student, and he wants to start a punk rock band with other French students to sing in French. You know, and I'm thinking, if this guy's coming up to me, I'm saying, you don't have a chance you're going to find somebody else who plays punk rock, likes punk rock, and speaks French, but isn't from France. Well, the guy found like four or five other people who love it, and they're touring all over Europe, singing in French from the Bronx, punk rock music. The, the, the things that we get drawn toward for the establishment of friendships and associations are a myriad uh, there was another TV program, as I was thinking about this, that came back to mind from a couple of years ago, where these distinguished ladies who got together, they formed a friendship based on their love for wild-looking shoes, crazy shoes, homemade shoes. They would make them out of piano keys or stuff that they would find around the house, and they would make shoes. And they would get together and fly out to, you know, the unsuspecting mall dwellers in Boston, and they'd all meet up out there and just go walking through the malls, drawing attention to themselves, laughing like crazy, and they would preset these times throughout the year that they would get together and do this. Now, when you watch the closeness of their interaction in the program, you would almost be led to conclude that they were, you know, uh, wives of war veterans or... Yeah, they, maybe they grew up in the same neighborhood since they were little bitty kids, but the shoe thing, that's what unites you? You make homemade shoes? What unites us in this passage is the most profound ground for unity and fellowship imaginable. Even in this room, we have all types of people. All sorts of diverse personalities, experiences, hobbies, interests. Just wrote some of these down. Executives, salespeople. We've got mechanics, homemakers, book types, travel types, culture types, cheap types. You know who you are. I even heard a few weeks ago that we have a closet Harley girl here. You would never know if I said her name, but she rides. Yeah. She... She is a, I can see some of the people in her covenant group know who that is. Early birds, night owls, right? Laid-back types. <laughs> Obsessive, compulsive types. What unites all of these different types and strands of people who come from different backgrounds, different life stories? What draws us together? Turn to Ephesians chapter 2. There's a classic work written on the atonement 
by John Owen. It was titled, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. I think the reason why it's such a classic work is it is so fundamentally biblical in its argument about God's triumph over evil and over the tyranny of death. A profound work. But he got that straight from Scripture. He got that straight from the New Testament. And if, if he had written another book, it could have perhaps been called The Death of Division in the Death of Christ. And he would have got that straight from Ephesians 2. Let's read this together in verse 11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, this ought to be just one of the favorite scriptures for we Gentiles. Listen to this. You who were afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two and so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby Killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off. And peace to those who are near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. That is profound stuff. Because what it's doing there is it's laying the groundwork for our fellowship as a body. The groundwork of our fellowship coming out of the very new covenant work that took place when Christ shed His blood on the cross. That blood was the seal of the new covenant. It was, it was the effective date. It was announcing the effective date of the entrance of the new covenant. And the new covenant was bringing all sorts of new realities into the lives of believers. Because all of this Old Testament type and shadow language that masked the gospel, that concealed it. It was there, but it was concealed. And Paul comes on the scene and he says, that which was concealed, that which was a mystery, I come and proclaim to you. And so the types and shadows were going away and now the gospel and the kingdom of God were coming forth with clarity and simplicity and saving power. And what was taking place in this moment, remember, as the veil of the, of the temple was torn in two, that moment opened the way for Gentiles to join in with the people of God from the Old Testament. 
and to all be called by the same name, God's covenant chosen people. And it blew to bits all of the animosity and acrimony and all the things that Jews and Gentiles were fighting about. And the cross comes and makes a new statement about our conflict with God. Most significantly, we're reconciled to God while His enemies, we've been reconciled to God. As well as, very significantly, our conflict with each other. The cross signals radical reconciliation. Reconciliation from, from man to God, as well as reconciliation that destroys all human animosity, all human-to-human -human struggles. That's, that's why, if you wonder why Paul got all lathered up in the whole Peter with the Judaizers incident in Galatians 2, that's the reason. The reason Paul stood up to Peter publicly, got in his face about what Peter was doing in separating himself, separating himself from the Gentiles, is because that was not an ethnic issue. That was a gospel issue. Paul had a problem with the fact that what Peter was tampering with and threatening was the very inclusivism of the gospel that was purchased by Christ. He was building the wall back up between Jews and Gentiles. And Paul said, foul, no deal. We can't do that. Christ broke that wall. Peter, what are you doing building it again? And so he was concerned that in this moment, this leader, this influential leader was reasserting the conflict, reaffirming the conflict and the divide between Jews and Gentiles. And in that moment, if you will, you know what Paul was doing? He was stepping in front of us. He was protecting us. He was protecting our place in the covenant community. We say, no, you can't kick these guys out. They are one family with us. Because the wall was destroyed when Christ's blood was shed. That, friends, is the ground of our fellowship. Now, one other fellowship, one other association in all of history is rooted in something as cosmically significant as the atoning death of the only begotten Son of God. We're not talking about bereaved gerbil owners here. We're talking about death. We're talking about covenant. We're talking about God self-sacrificing so that this could happen, so that we could be together in here. You know, I think the challenge that that raises before us is how you can look at these ladies who get together and they look past the things that aggravate them about the other person because we both like wild shoes. We both like homemade shoes. So we look past the things that we don't like about the other person. But the challenge is, what about us? Are we so easily offended by the people who are sitting next to us or in covenant groups with us that, hey, that's a deal breaker, bud. We're done. I'm not going to be talking to you. I'm not going to be interacting with you. It, we're just going to go polite. With a cross has furnished a ground 
for reconciliation from man to man that is so amazing. And for us to ignore the ground on which we stand is, in a sense, for us to insult the blood of Christ. To militate against the very gospel that saved us. We have to walk in fellowship. We are not only enabled and empowered, we are commanded. The very cross commands us to get past our differences, to get over our offenses, and to walk together in unity. Galatians 3, 26-29, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. See, this is the kind of message that was getting fall in trouble with the Judaizers. Because they believed in the Messiah, but they weren't willing to go so far as Paul goes here. You know, it's sort of like in the car commercials where they just add some real fast language there at the end. The Judaizers, they would take most of what's said in this passage, but they would just add a couple of par- parenthetical additions. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith and circumcision. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ and circumcised have put on Christ. You see, they're just trying to slip in there this institution that had been preserved as a tradition of the covenant people of God, to be sure, throughout the centuries and the millennia. And it was just hard to let the thing go, frankly. And so they wanted to continue to say, look, Paul, we'll take your Christ, we'll take your faith, but you take our circumcision. And Paul said, no. (laughs) Let them in on the basis of faith alone, grace alone. And that's what he's saying here. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Now he's making enemies. There is neither slave nor free. Walls are falling through this passage. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, this is the ultimate insult right here. You are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to to promise. See how significant these things are in the New Testament? The ground of our fellowship. Ephesians 3.6 This mystery that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the Gospel. What does all of this mean? It means we have the deepest foundation imaginable for fellowship and unity. There's no way to contrive an association that is grounded in anything deeper than an eternally effective sacrifice. One that keeps us alive right now. The work of the blood of Christ is what saves us from wrath, not only then, Now, the reason we're breathing is because God was merciful. And God is not merciful except through the mediation of Jesus Christ. Christ broke the wall. Christ allows us access, as Hebrews 10, where we began. Christ did these things. Therefore, we have something to do. 
John Stott says, The same New Testament which contains Paul's flash of individualism, I have been crucified with Christ, also insists that Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Thus, the very purpose of his self-giving on the cross was not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate their loneliness, but to create a new community whose members would belong to him, love one another, and eagerly serve the world. Christ died in abject aloneness, rejected by his own nation, deserted by his own disciples, but lifted up on the cross, he would draw all men to himself. Part of that drawing, where C.A. Spurgeon called the marvelous magnet of the cross, has brought us here. We are drawn together for the purpose of glorifying God and fellowshipping together, encouraging one another. But we, we don't just share an experience. We don't just share the experience of those who have been redeemed. We don't just share the experience and the story of those who were headed toward hell, but redeemed by, by the intrusive grace of God. That's not just a story that we share. We share a mission. We share a task. We share life. It doesn't stop with our experience that we can look back and say, hey, guess what brought us here? The cross brought us here. But guess what takes us from here into a life of mission together? Loving one another. Laying down our life. All the one anothering commands of the New Testament that abound with promise for our lives. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 10 again. See those experiences in verse 19 through 21? All those, those since we, since we have experienced this, since we have come to know this, since this is our experience. But every one of those since we's in verse 19 through 21 has its corresponding let us in verse 22 through 25. So in 19 through 21, we have since we, since we. In 22 through 25, you have this. Let us, here's the list, draw near to God. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us stir one another up to love and good works. Let us not neglect to meet together. Let us encourage one another as we see the day drawing near. In fact, they have more than their corresponding counterpart. They have two. For every sense, we have two. Let us. Look at this quote from Richard Lamb. (coughs) We want to participate in the quest for the ultimate in the context of the intimate. I love that. We want to know deeply and to be deeply known. If what you want is friendship, deep satisfying, purposeful, long-lasting friendship, I believe the only way to find it is to pursue God. If what you want is God, I believe that desire will bring you into contact and deeper relationship with a community of friends shaped by the same pursuit. 
You see from this, God's call to us is not simply to come to himself, to come to him. It's a call to come to church. It's a call to come to each other. And and really, they're the same call. In the Old Testament, as soon as God said, gather the people together unto me. Psalm, I think it's 50 or 51. Yeah, it's 50, I believe. Gather the people together to me. Those who have made covenant with me by sacrifice. In that moment, what he's saying is, is not just come to me to worship me. He's saying, come to me and be together as the community of faith. Be together as the covenant people of God. That's why the accent is, those who have made covenant with me. Get those people together. So the call that God issues to his people is not simply come and meet with me. It's come and meet with them. The other people who are in your family. The other people who share your experience. The other people who stand on the same ground of the redemptive work of God. This carries over into the New Testament, from the Old Testament, where Jesus promises. He says, where my people gather in my name, I will be there in the midst of them. It's a promise that every time we gather together, Jesus says he'll be here as we come together. So we don't sit on our couch, watch a a sermon, read something online and have church. No, we come together. We gather together. We meet with each other. We fellowship with each other. We worship God. And it's all one huge testimony to the redemptive work of God. The pursuit of God can never be divorced from fellowship with God's people. And and one of the points that God acts, just because the sake of time, is how countercultural that is right now. There are conversations going on, if you will. Conversation is the term. Conversations and movements happening within the church that are rendering local church life as it's been known for 2,000 years. Really saying, that's the old way of doing church. And, And essentially getting in a place where they are threatening the thing that has sustained the church over the course of New Testament and church history. Dangerous stuff. So we have to fight right now the fight of faith to insist on the corporate necessity of the Christian life. Richard Lamb goes on to say, in fact, even cursory glances through the Gospels confirm that the work Jesus did in the lives of his disciples occurred because the disciples were in relationship not simply with him, but with one another. That manner of growth in spiritual depth in the context of community is not accidental. It is part of how we're built. We were created to seek God and we were created to find Him with others. Not only does this reflect the strategy of Jesus, just as crucially it reflects (coughs) the design of God. Look later in Hebrews 10, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened 
you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. Sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. (coughs) For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Verse 39. Listen to this apostolic conclusion, the the resolve. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Do you hear? Do you hear the partnership? Do you hear the solidarity of this passage? Do you hear the we's that abound throughout the togetherness of this passage? As these early Christians walked together and strengthened one another and held on and coached each other forward. That's not unique to Hebrews. That's New Testament church. We could travel through any of the epistles in the New Testament and see this kind of work going on as the church was called to build itself up, to abound in love toward one another, to practice authentic fellowship, to confess their sins one to another, to pray for each other, to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice. All of this rich biblical language about fellowship. What's the outcome? What's the outcome of the right working of the church? It's that we don't shrink back. It's that we have, as Pilgrim's Progress illustrates, movement always forward, away from the city of destruction and toward the celestial city, looking for the hope, the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Just flip the page. We're not just cheering each other on. Chapter 12, verse 1. We're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. It's the church, dead and gone. Let us also, as we know where we're headed, as we know our destiny, let us also, you see freedom here in this passage, lay aside every weight. And the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. You see, do you see the the intermingling of fellowship and friendship, fellowship and freedom in the New Testament. First John one seven talks about us fellowshipping together, and as we do that, the blood of His Son is cleansing us. There's this cleansing work going on in our hearts as we fellowship with one another. Wow. Hebrews ten, Hebrews twelve, First Peter two, Titus two, Romans eight, tons of scripture. 
jumps in and says, do this for the benefit of your life, for your growth in Christ. For your growth toward greater and greater freedom in your struggle against sin. You know, one of the other things that that is so wonderful about the New Testament way that they did the life of the church was the component of suffering. Even you have that here. But what draws these people together, it says in chapter 10, verse 34, 33, being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. This was a band of people that were hanging together in the midst of a world that was antagonistic to the movement of the kingdom of God. And they all knew it. And it was their common commitment. It was their covenant commitment. And so even, even when you read in certain passages in the New Testament, like 1 John, for example, you have the church distressed, wondering, what has happened? People have left the church body. What's going on? And John steps in to give pastoral counsel and say, look, we've not lost anyone. They went out from us. They were never of us. Hold on to your brothers. Snatch them as though you're snatching them from the fire. Speak to those who are erring, those who are going astray. Admonish the idle. Hold on to the weak. You hear all of that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. There are these commitments that they have as a covenant community to walk together, to hold on to each other because the world isn't going to make this easy. And how much they needed each other because of their common experience of suffering. You know, even the Lord Jesus Himself. Greatest hour of affliction. He's trembling there in the garden. Blood coming out of His pores. He's so under the weight of what's about to happen. What does he say? I'm going to be off alone. I'll deal with it. It's just me and God. Me and Father will take care of this. No. Looks at his friends. He says, would you come with me? Would you watch with me? Would you walk over here? While I'm in agony, would you support me? Christ himself. Laying down the example of how we need each other in suffering. That's where all of this becomes very real, isn't it? It becomes very real at gravesides. Remember having a conversation when we had an alpha table. (coughs) Excuse me. And there was a couple sitting there. In fact, they're here. And as Keith was talking about the body, and the way that the body builds itself up. And he just grabbed a little illustration about gravesides in the body. How people take off work to go and be next to that person when they've lost their loved one. And this person, I just watched her. She was totally fixated on that truth. And he had gone elsewhere as soon as that was over discuss some other things. As soon as he opened discussion to the table, the first thing she wanted to talk about, her eyes were full of tears. She said, is that true? Does the body really do that? 
Does fellowship go that deep to where people would pour out their affection, would lay down their lives, and prepare meals, get together and say, hey, somebody's suffering over there, let's, let's make sure we're covering them. Does that really happen? Absolutely captivated her. It's amazing. But what we need for that to be real is real relationships, don't we? I mean, aren't there a few people, when you're suffering, when you're by the graveside of your own loved one, aren't there a few people that you look for them in particular? Now, I remember right after my dad died, and those of you who may know the story, when I was 12 years old, my dad was preaching in the middle of his sermon. He fell down died. The church just immediately started to jump. A lady jumped from over, a great friend of our family, jumped over the pew to shield my eyes. Then, you know, you have hundreds of people at the funeral. They're all just streaming through. You know, that's probably where my bald spot began. Just so many people coming by and rubbing the back of my head. But you know what? Really? Of all those things, I, I, I only remember a few comments. You know, there, were, there were the people who just said, hey boy, you know, it's going to be alright. You know, I'm sorry about your dad. But then there were the other ones who didn't have to say a word. They just came. They just stood there. They hugged you. They embraced you. No words, no solutions, no offers, no, no quoting scripture. All they did was just came. And the relationship did the rest. Real fellowship in those moments. And, and even in the Psalms, there are many scriptures about this, about the feeling of going through suffering all alone. He talks about, I feel like I'm a bird on the corner of a housetop all by myself. And I have no one to comfort me. Real fellowship, guys. You want to see the payoff? Wait till someone dies. Watch what happens. Those people that you're walking with, you're having dinner with them, week after week, you're meeting, you're confessing your sins, you're putting your arms around, you're, you're encouraging them. Watch what happens when one of you loses a loved one. Amazing. Biblical type of stuff starts happening. You know, the scripture says, a friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. I think in, when it comes to that context of suffering together as a fellowship and seeing what real fellowship actually looks like, I think it's, it's those moments where the brotherhood of the body of Christ rings true. Brothers born for adversity. And you turn around and you say, Guy, you were there for me, man. What was that about? You know, in a sense, the person could say, I was born for that, man. I was born to be there for you. Born to stand next to you in your moment of adversity. Fellowship happens there. But we're, we're not just striving for all of this for the sake of striving. The New Testament vision has us looking somewhere. We have a common destiny. We set our hope on the Redeemer and the Deliverer who is coming to fully redeem and to fully deliver. And that is a powerful reality as you read through the New Testament to see 
how forward-looking these people were. Remember our passage. <coughs> Hebrews 10.25 Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. Pilgrim's Progress. Looking toward the celestial city as you read <coughs> the way this man processes life. He never loses sight of the blessed hope. He's always thinking about that. He's always saying, I'm going to get out of this slew of despond. I'm going to get out of this doubting castle. All these different places where he falls into trouble and failure. And he's constantly reminding himself the celestial city is that way. He has a goal. He has a destiny. He's aiming toward it with everything in him. And that, in a very real sense, is what is driving him on, isn't it? Remember in Romans 8, where you have these groaning Christians. That's us. Groaning Christians. Yearning for the day of our consummate redemption. And constantly bearing in mind, this groaning will be over. And when it's over, in the twinkling of an eye, we will forget about it that fast. Constantly thinking and rehearsing these truths. That's where Paul, this message was almost going to be just a walk through First Thessalonians in looking at fellowship and freedom and the blessed hope. First Thessalonians, where there's this suffering church, and Paul rushes to the side of a church rattled by persecution. The persecution of Thessalonica was such that they not only came chasing after Paul when he was there and ran him out of town, but when he went 50 miles up the road, on foot, they came and chased him there. Deep persecution was going on in Thessalonica. In this brand new church, Paul's baby, he had just established this church. And he wanted to know, have those persecutions torn your faith to shreds? And he said, I'm dying to get there. But he couldn't get there. Satan had hindered him. And so he sent Timothy, his number one man. He sends him and he says, establish that church. Make sure their faith is holding. Establish the church apparently meant to remind them of God's work in them. Chapter 1, verse 2 through 9. To encourage them again toward fellowship and mutual upbuilding. <laughs> to remind them of what was in store for them. And then he finished with one more postscript on the need for biblical fellowship. See, though, though there are these struggles that the church goes through, we have to bear in mind and continually yearn for and long for the moment as C.S. Lewis described it, when we leave the shadow lands and we wake up in the morning, the dawn of eternity. Or, or to put it the way the Hebrews writer said, where we, where we finally reach that city whose builder and maker is God. He highlights their freedom, their fellowship, and their destiny. When he points in verse 9, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, he points to how they turn from idols to serve the true and living God. 
And then immediately what he does is he transitions to the blessed hope. He says they're looking. They're looking for that deliverance. Jesus, who delivers us from the coming wrath. And how he comforts them. If you read through 1 Thessalonians, how he comforts them with, I think, one of Paul's favorite doctrines. The return of Jesus Christ would dry every tear from your eyes. And this, this church where people one by one were being picked off by persecution. They're dropping like flies. Paul says, guess where they're going? The twinkle of an eye. You'll be with them. And we, we established accidentally a little tradition in our family. One day, I was talking to Hunter on the way home, and it used to be a longer drive home from the office. And he kept asking, when are you going to be here? When are you going to be here? You know, five minutes, whatever. And I'm like, well, you know, it's another 20 minutes. And uh, so eventually what I, I just said, Hunter, I'll just call you back when I'm on the street. And so he was fine with that. So I called him back. I get on the street. I said, minute and a half. Then I get down two blocks, one block, two blocks. I'm on the third block. This is our block. I said, let's count to ten. And I said, go to the front window. And watch, this is a cool trick, watch. Go to the front window. He goes to the front window. He's got no reason to believe I'm going to pull this off, right? Simple faith. That if Dad counts to ten and he says, on ten, we're going to see each other. On ten, we're going to see each other. So he runs to the front window, he pulls back the shades, he's waiting there, and we're counting to ten. One, two, both of us. Three, four, and I'm like slowing and speeding up to gauge whether or not we're going to get there at the right time. He doesn't see me at six. He doesn't see me at seven. He doesn't see me at eight. He doesn't see me at nine. And then when I turn the corner, we're both looking at each other and saying, ten. And he's just, Wah! you know, just, Kim, how'd you do that? You know, ecstatic. And then I come in, you know, and all that stuff. And then so the next day he wants to do it again. Do it again. Do it. <laughs> it got old after a couple of weeks. But recently, Will did the same thing. So actually, right now, we're in the season of phone calls between me and Will and the 10-counting game. <coughs> now, that's what Paul was saying to these Thessalonians. He said, look, he's coming back. When he comes, there will be glorious joy. Singing in the streets. He's, gonna, he's going to... Put away our adversaries and the one who took your dad and tied him to a stake and burned him alive. Christ is going to come back. And he even says, he's going to reckon with those people. He says, I want to give you some relief. They're going to pay for that. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. When he comes with all his angels... He wanted them living for the last day. And He wanted to assure them that these these afflictions will pass. This this is the ultimate consummation of of the text. It says, many of the afflictions of the righteous. The Lord delivers them out of them all. Highlighting the beauty of how heaven never stops. G.I. Packer says, nor will it end. Its eternity is part of its glory. Endlessness, one might say, is the glory of glory. 
Hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this ever to end. But it invariably does. The hearts of those in heaven say, I want this to go on forever. And it will. There can be no better news than this. Remember Luke? This is quoted this morning. He steps into writing the account of the life of Jesus. He records Jesus saying, when you see these things going on, the life of the church, you see these things happening in the world, go to the window. Look. Look up. For your redemption draweth nigh. You can make that more personal. Your Redeemer draweth nigh. Fellowship with the redeemed is not an end in itself. We are fellowshipping together, walking toward consummate redemption. The moment where everything is put right. The fellowship of the redeemed describes what we do as we wait for Him to come. The fellowship of the redeemed is fully consummated in the glorious presence of the Redeemer Himself. So Thessalonians then, not surprisingly, lays out the same summary of biblical fellowship as Hebrews 10. The groundwork is laid for the journey of fellowship toward the hope of our calling. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want to be Christians who are preoccupied with the now and not sufficiently factoring in our future, our destiny. Not sufficiently paying attention to the way that you link our growth and you link our freedom to our fellowship together. Lord, I pray that the effect of this message, as Your Word climbs into our hearts through this week, that the effect would be very practical. People picking up phones, people showing up at covenant group meetings, people divesting themselves of their pride, people confessing their sins, doing what You said to do while we wait for what you say is going to happen. Lord, help us not to play games. Help us not to live in superficial Christendom. Lord, mark us the way that the New Testament church was marked, that the world might know we are disciples by the way that we love one another. So that they could see our lives, how we live toward each other, the support that we offer, the encouragement, the rebuke, the exhortations that they would see and wonder in amazement. That it wouldn't look like what they have at the Lions Club or what they have at the association at the firm. Lord, it would look unique because it has your fingerprint on it. You've called us to these things. God, cause us to walk in them for your glory, for our growth, 
Lord, may we not divorce our struggle with the straps of sin and bondage. May we not divorce what would happen if we connected to others in the ways that You tell us to. Show us the prospect of eternity that we'll share together. Help us to get over our petty offenses. Lord, in all these things, orient us toward eternity. May we always be looking for Your return. And He who has this hope in Him purifies Himself. Lord, restore in us the category of as we see the day approaching. We ask You for this, God. In Jesus' name, Amen.